The way that I met Peter was he uh, heard me speak, it was 20 years ago, my first year here, uh, in Colorado Springs at a general assembly. I was speaking on uh, engaging the postmodern student as a chaplain at Vanderbilt and people from all over the country. And uh, so Peter very graciously came to me afterwards. He said, I enjoyed your uh, talk, but uh, the postmodern era will not last very long. I said, oh, really? Why? And he said, because nobody can live with the idea that there's no view of reality. That's the postmodern idea, that there's, there is no worldview upon which to see the world. So everything's relative. Well, nobody can live that way, and the reason being is because we're spiritual beings. Even if you're here today and you are a, would consider yourself a non-Christian you, you would have to go, I, you know, think about God and morality and all these kind of things. And so I said, okay, so what's the next era? Where, where are we headed? And he said, oh, we're already there. Uh, we just hadn't figured it out yet that we are moving toward neo-paganism. And I said, what? Like witches and warlocks and th those type things? And he said, oh, yes. And uh, so I began to read his books, and I began to realize uh, that he's, he's absolutely uh, correct about that, that there is this new uh, spirituality. And if I had the Age of Aquarius, you remember the song, Age of Aquarius, Aquarius, um, the fifth dimension? Uh, I was going to read the lyrics. I'm going to do it tonight, so you'll come back to hear the lyrics. <laughs> but, but, but it'll freak you out. Uh, but there's no reason to freak out. But what we need to understand is where we are in Babylonian captivity now. Okay? Uh, in other words, uh, Israel was taken to Babylon. And we need to know how to live this way now. Uh, to love those in Babylon. But to understand what's going on. And that's very, we're very committed to that. So, um, so I'm going to ask Peter to come up in a moment. But he asked me to read our text. Is, uh, 1 Corinthians 15 is Paul's uh, apologetic for the resurrection. We're only going to read verses uh, 1 through 11. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you received, in which you stand, and by which you're being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received: that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles." Unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and say you believe. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've revealed yourselves in many ways to us, but uh, Lord, you've certainly revealed yourself in the creation. 
Uh, Father, as we look at night at the stars and as we look at the world around us and as we look in the eyes of human beings, uh, we see in your created order the reality that the, the stars are screaming and pouring forth speech, uh, that you're the true and living God. Uh, and yet, Lord, that revelation is only enough to condemn us, and we suppress that reality according to Romans 1. We sit on it. We, we hold it down. Uh, and we end up worshiping the created thing rather than the creator himself. And so, Lord, we confess to you uh, these, these realities. And, and yet, Lord, uh, you have revealed not only uh, our fallenness, but you've also revealed uh, that uh, there would be a Savior. And he has come. Uh, he was uh, born of a virgin, uh, fully, fully God and fully, fully man, God in the flesh, tabernacling among us 2,000 years ago. And uh, he was crucified for the sins of those who are willing to admit that they have offended, without a doubt, this true and living God, the triune God. But through his death and resurrection, all things are new. And you've given us your Holy Spirit. And I pray, O oh Holy Spirit, today, this morning, that you would bring people home to yourself. O oh Lord, we need to know uh, this gospel of reconciliation. That the resurrection of Jesus Christ has made all things new. And that we as believers, even though we're still broken, through the power of the Spirit coming in our weakness, can uh, restore your creation to the reign of Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray you do that through Redeemer and other faithful churches in Athens, Georgia, so that we might love the city of Athens and uh, minister the gospel here. Thank you for Peter and pray that you would speak to him this morning. And we ask it in your name. Amen. Peter? Love you. Hal, 20 years ago, I did not have the right term to give to you. I discovered it a few years ago. We are living in a post-secular age. Think about that. Secularism is dead. Secularism was killed by postmodernism and opened up the way for neo-paganism, what's now called in intellectual circles the post-secular age, to begin to take over the minds of intellectuals who were closing their minds to any kind of spirituality as pure uh, sensationalism or uh, you know, uh, old-fashioned, uh, unacceptable ways to think. Now, our intellectual class is opening itself to this kind of thinking. I'm delighted to be here. This is such a wonderful breath of fresh air to me for me to see what the Lord has done through my dear friend Hal and his wife when they came here and how this church has developed. It's really a great example for churches all over the United States, Hal. Thank you. And I know that Hal has been preaching on cosmology, and I myself am committed to doing this. My own pastor, three weeks ago or so, started on a series on cosmology in Escondido. I wonder why. Why is the focus on cosmology? Well, I think the only way forward for us Christians is to understand cosmology. That is to say, how the world is put together, because it's very difficult to call you a hater and engaging in hate speech if you can show people that there are actually only two cosmologies on offer and you've chosen one of them. So more on that tonight. But uh, I just wanted to get that plug in for this evening. Um, 
But I am convinced that this is absolutely essential for us, and I'm glad to be able to work out tonight some of the implications of what Hal is doing in his preaching. But this morning, I want to focus more on a different kind of apologetic, namely an apologetic for the actual basic, basic gospel. Because as Christianity is being more and more rejected in these days, and, and Christians are being put to one side, it's easy for people to take hold of the gospel and revamp it according to what they want it to be. Either they reject the gospel or they will make it something other. So my intention this morning is to try to propose to you the essential nature of what we call the gospel, namely the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the Christian faith itself. Rightfully, we can do all the other things that this church is doing, namely social implications, we can get involved in creation care, but it's only the power of the gospel that will enable us to do this in any kind of valid way. And so I want to focus on what the Apostle Paul is giving to us as the essence of the gospel, what the, uh, what the earliest church actually believed. I've given as my title the gospel first and last, and you'll see why in a minute, but that's because, of course, God himself is first and last. God is called that in Isaiah 48, 12, listen to me, O Jacob, I am the first and I am the last. And Christ, the eternal Son, also carries that name in Revelation 2, 8, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and last who died and came to life. First and last makes us think, first of all, about God, and makes us think, actually, about the nature of the gospel, not as what we can do for God, or even what we can do for other people, but what God has done for us. Amen? The gospel is the account of God's intervention in this world to save sinners. That's the essence of the gospel. And so, I want to look at that with you. And if you were listening carefully, you heard the two terms first and last in this text. Paul says that this gospel is of first importance. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And then he goes on to name the apostle Peter and the first generation of apostles. But then at the end of this small section in verse 8, Paul says, he appeared last of all to me. So you've got here in this text, first and last. What is true about the nature of God is also true about the gospel. It is first and last. And I want to look at the gospel now under those two rubrics of first and last. So, I only have two points. You're already relieved. But be careful when a professor says, I only have two points, because they always have many subpoints. But I do have two major points, first and last, as regard the gospel. Well, the gospel is first in so many ways, 
It's first in power. It is a dynamic, life-giving power that must be given away. For I deliver to you as of first, first importance what I also received. Paul had to give this away. When he'd received it, he gave it away. I'm always amazed sitting on airplanes next to my wife. And she always puts me either at the window or the aisle, and she sits in the middle. But for most of the journey, she's talking to somebody uh, a seat away from me, namely the other person. And she seizes every occasion to share the gospel. She is a great example to me. And uh, I encourage us all, but me especially, to, to give this gospel away. This gospel is first in power as well because it enables crooked people to stand. The gospel which you have received, says Paul, by which you are being saved, in which you stand. These indeed were crooked people. Trophies of grace, as my grandmother in Liverpool used to say. They were the sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, men who practiced homosexuality, thieves, the greedy drunkards, that's party animals, revilers, swindlers, that's tax tax cheats. Such were some of you, says Paul, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This group of deadbeats are now new creatures at the hearing and the believing of this amazing divine message, the justifying love of God in Christ that saves them. Such a powerful gospel, which is of first importance, requires attention and faithfulness. Now I would remind you, says Paul, of the gospel that I preach to you if you hold fast to the word, unless you believed in vain. You cannot take the gospel for granted, and especially perhaps in our time where it is under so much criticism. It is your very life and breath, your assurance of acceptance before God. And I encourage you to hold fast to it, closer than your retirement funds, your reputation, your popularity. So the gospel is first in importance because of its power. The gospel is also of first importance. It is indeed the first virtually official statement of the earliest church. The gospel is not an ancient myth. It is not an example of social justice. It is not a program as such of human flourishing. It is, as I said, a declaration of God's act in history, of his intervention to save sinners in the midst of history. The Apostle Peter, in his own writing, says the gospel is not made up of cunningly devised myths, but of historical eyewitnesses of God's majesty. We ourselves have heard this voice born from heaven. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, for we were with him on the holy mount. This is eyewitness accounts of the nature of God's intervention in history. 
And of course, as this text develops, it is the confession of the church concerning this eyewitness account. And it comes in four parts. It is first in importance because it lays out what we as Christians must believe. And there are four parts to this public act of God. The first one is the death of Jesus, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. It's very interesting to note that the death of Jesus is placed immediately in the context of the Old Testament Scripture. And in particular, obviously, the Old Testament sacrificial system. So that the first plank of the Gospel on which we find found our own beliefs, is the atonement. About uh, two months ago, I was invited to Westminster, uh, sorry, the Houses of Parliament in London for a banquet in the Churchill Room. I'd never had an experience like that before. Even though I'm an Englishman, I'd never been inside the Houses of Parliament, and I was very impressed. But I was impressed because I saw a statue of one of my heroes, William Gladstone, a fellow Liverpudlian, who was prime minister four times and a deeply committed evangelical believer. At his funeral was sung Augustus Toplady's hymn, Rock of Ages. Thinking of history, that was written in 1776 when you people were doing much less important things. (laughs) But in that hymn, that wonderful statement is made that has been with me all my life, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling, naked, Come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. These great men like William Gladstone and others who nailed their colors to the mast lived by the power of the atonement. So the death of Jesus, according to the scriptures, is the first plank of this great statement of the gospel. The second is his burial, that he was buried. You know, you don't bury living beings, hopefully. Uh, You only bury dead people. And so this statement in the gospel wants us to know that Jesus really died. He wasn't some kind of spirit that uh, escaped the body. Uh, but that he actually died and was buried. It is finished, says the scriptures. He became sin for us. He tasted death for us. So again, he died and was buried. The second phrase is the proof that he died. The third element is the resurrection of Jesus, that he was raised according to the scriptures. The resurrection is an incredible statement of not just what happened to Jesus, 
but actually a prophecy of the transformation of the heavens and the earth, anticipated in the physical resurrection of Jesus. Because that body was not left down in the tomb, but it escaped from the tomb as a body. There was an empty tomb. Which means, of course, that one day we ourselves also will know that transforming experience of the physical world and of our physical bodies. But then to prove that, we have the fourth element of the gospel, the appearances of Jesus. That he was raised, that he appeared, proves that he really was raised. He appeared to Cephas and the Twelve and so on. So, we have a clear statement of the gospel. And in these appearances, what is happening is that Jesus appears, proving his divinity as a true God and creator and redeemer. And at that moment, Jesus, the Son of God, commissions the apostles to go and take this message to the rest of the world. So the appearances actually have symbolic, well, not symbolically, actually within them, this commissioning of world evangelism. Now, of course, some of you are in school and you hear radical professors telling you that this was just a myth. A liberal New Testament scholar who was raised an evangelical Lutheran Marcus Borg said this. He's recently died. He's probably changed his mind since then. I'm skeptical that the resurrection involved anything happening to the corpse of Jesus. The truth of Easter really has nothing to do with whether the tomb was empty on a particular morning 2,000 years ago or whether anything happened to the corpse of Jesus. I see the truth of Easter as grounded in the Christian experience of Jesus as a living spiritual reality of the present. So Jesus has been made into a spirit. And of course, what do we do with that? Well, just as Jesus was a spirit, so are we. So if you want to know God, look into the mirror every morning. I do that and I get very discouraged. We are not involved uh, with a group of wild-eyed mystics, but this account of the appearances includes all kinds of people, individuals, groups, a large group of 500. So it's not an issue of mass hysteria, and of course the Apostle Paul includes himself in that list. So we're obliged to take very seriously the affirmation that he died and was raised, that he, that he was raised and he appeared, because it's very difficult to argue that uh, the empty tomb was the creation of uh, unbelievers or even misled believers. Had the Jews or the Romans, for instance, stolen the body, all they needed to do was produce the body if they wanted to end the Christian mission, and that would have been the best possible way to do it. If the disciples had stolen the body and then lied about it, 
how do you explain that most of them died excruciating deaths on the basis of this lie? That doesn't make sense either. This is solid history, as Paul says to Festus. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. The gospel is a public event, testified publicly, and that's what we're called to do today. Amen? I heard a few. Uh, so the gospel is first in power. It's first in its importance as to what it says. It's also the first in time. This is the first gospel. This is the gospel of those who were there at the beginning, the original believers. In recent times, liberal Christians have tried to argue that the first gospel was really not this one, and that Jesus was a spiritual guru. I know I studied with some of these people at Harvard. People like Elaine Pagels, who wrote the Gnostic Gospels, was a sort of friend of mine. And uh, the argument is that the earliest church was a, a, a mishmash of various ideas, including the Gnostic idea that Jesus was just a spirit. Harvey Cox, in his book, The Age of Faith, that came out a few years ago, says this, there seems not yet to be a central body of orthodox doctrine distinguished from heretical doctrine. This is what he's saying about the earliest church. There was no orthodoxy. There was no unified belief. And so, of course, with our new knowledge of the earliest time, presupposing that basically everyone was a Gnostic, then um, we can engage in producing the same kind of Christianity in our time where you can believe whatever you want to believe. So that's how people are trying to understand the original Christian church and then use it to justify the mayhem of uh, liberalism in our time. So there was no period of orthodoxy, that uh, orthodoxy was a pious fiction, and the earliest form of Christianity was Gnosticism. Well, I have one interesting argument to show you that I believe blows that idea out of the water. It's a little complicated, but I know you're all such intelligent people uh, that I want you to try to follow me in my argumentation here. First Corinthians, the text we read, actually can be read as the earliest creed. We read a creed today, didn't we? The, nice, the Apostles' Creed. This, I believe, is the earliest creed of the Christian faith. The church has always had creeds, and we've not necessarily noticed that there is actually 
a creed that is the foundation of all other creeds, and I believe it's this one. It has a creedal form. Take a look at your bulletin, where you have the various uh, statements, that, 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 that. That's the way you establish a creed with sort of statements that follow one another in some kind of a logical order. It's a creed, I'll use the term, because I believe it is, it's a creed that comes from a period prior to the Apostle Paul's conversion and his ministry, which means, actually, that it comes from a period prior to the late 30s when Paul was converted. He said he received it, right? So it precedes Paul. Now, we read 1 Corinthians as Paul writing, of course, and that's right, but in this particular case, he's actually writing down what he received, as he says, from those who were apostles before him. So we actually have here an historical record in creedal form of what the earliest church in Jerusalem actually believed. Now, if that's true, that this is the earliest church and its belief, then what do you do with uh, that phrase, according to the Scriptures? Well, first of all, the Gnostics could never say that. They hated the Old Testament. They hated God the Creator. The body was ugly. The spirit was what was important. That's what Gnosticism is. So this reference a couple of times to the Old Testament is clearly the proof that the earliest church was not Gnostic, that they built their Christian belief on the basis of the Old Testament. It's also proof, though, that this text doesn't come from the actual pen of Paul, because when Paul says, according to the Scriptures, 31 times he says, as it is written. He never uses the phrase, according to the Scriptures. So this text has signs, you see, of being pre-Pauline, not Paul's own writing. And then you have a few elements like the Semitic name of Cephas, the fact that all those early witnesses of the resurrection are mentioned, and we know they came from the earliest period. So this is a text coming from the first decade of the church. This is the first original foundation of the church, affirming inspired scripture, the atoning death of Jesus, his bodily resurrection, and the mission of the apostles and the church to the world. Well, that was my first point. Are you with me? It was so simple. It was the first point. And now we come to the last point, which is last. You see this in 1 Corinthians 15, 8. Last of all, says Paul, he appeared to me. Obviously, things are a little more complicated. Last here has all kinds of fascinating meanings. I believe it means, in particular, that the gospel is completed. Last of all, means that there is an end to the giving of the gospel. 
to the apostles. And that we don't have to wait for more and more apostles to come with other gospels. <laughs> this is the last version of it. It's a completed word. It's as the book of the Hebrews says, in these last days God has spoken to us by his Son. So, what does Paul mean when he actually says last of all? Some people have tried to say that Paul doesn't mean last, he means least. He's simply saying, oh, I'm, which he believed, of course, I'm the least of the apostles. By the way, he says that in verse 9. So he was saying it in verse 8, that would be unnecessary repetition, right? Least of all, he appeared to me, I'm the least of the apostles. Actually, he says he's least, but this term, last, which sometimes can mean least, clearly, the way Paul uses it, cannot mean least, must mean chronologically last. Why do I say that with such conviction? Well, if you look at the other ways that Paul uses the term last, in this particular chapter, it will blow you away as to what it means. In verse 45, he talks about the last Adam. Is that the least Adam? No. It's the definitive last Adam creating a whole new race of human beings. That's in verse 45. In verse 26, he talks about the last enemy, which is death. That's not least. That really is the ultimate and final enemy. And then in verse 52, he talks about the last trumpet. That's not some little puff on a bugle. This is the final declaration that the fulfillment has come. Of course, the very text itself clearly is chronological, isn't it? Of the events of the life of Jesus. He died, was buried, he appeared. The most devastating argument, and it's the most complicated, so you're going to have to bear with me, that, that last of all here is not actually referring to Paul at all, but it's referring to Jesus. It's an adverb in Greek, and it means lastly. And it's the final appearance of Christ before uh, all those kinds of things uh, were fulfilled. So it really is a finality of the appearance of Christ to his apostles, Paul being the exception. So Paul is claiming to be the last apostle to whom was granted the last appearance of Christ. I wrote a whole article on this. If any of you are interested, uh, go on my website and you can find a reference to that. It's the last apostle, Paul the last apostle. Well, what is Paul teaching here as he comes to his own case and presenting himself as the last apostle? Paul is wanting to emphasize theologi theologically that there is nothing else to be added to the gospel. 
when Christ appears to Paul, the final piece of the foundation is laid. He says, I did not receive the gospel from any man or was taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And that's the gospel that he also received in this creedal form from the early church. So the implications are the following. The finished work and sure foundation of the apostolic testimony is what we must draw from this. We do not wait for additional revelation of this foundational nature. I once was in the Vatican meeting the uh, Archbishop, uh, well, he became Pope, uh, the previous Pope, Benedict the 16th, was he? I met him in the Vatican. Uh, we were visiting, and we were received by, by him. And I gave him my article on Paul, the last apostle. I'm not sure he liked it. But anyway, uh, we do not wait for additional revelation. And I think we need to be proud of that, that we have a foundation, says the apostle Paul, on which we build but we're not waiting for more apostles and more revelation. This is it. This is the foundation stone on which we build. That, of course, implies that the canon is closed. You know, you wonder, there were all these books going around and were people confused? Well, there was a certain confusion, but the church finally decided to name the ones that were apostolic and exercising authority in the church and brought them together and said, these are the books of the New Testament covenant. And they closed the canon. But that's okay, because if Paul is right, there is a last to that event. So we don't have to be embarrassed by the closing of the canon. Then uh, Paul also draws this conclusion that the basis of Christian unity is this gospel, this creed, not anything else. Not interfaith spirituality, not common spiritual techniques, but this gospel according to the scriptures. It's not really a social gospel. It is God's act on our behalf. And that's why we must always affirm the preaching of the cross and the resurrection are essential to what we do. As, you know, what you do in this church is wonderful as you work out the implications of this, but there are some people who have rejected this gospel and only do social gospel and believe that they are fulfilling God's will. But this gospel is the only one that creates the believing body of Christ. On this rock, says Jesus, I will build my church. And what is the rock? Well, it's the apostle affirming, proclaiming that you are the Christ. So that's the gospel. You are the Christ affirmed by the apostle. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then the text goes on, you remember in Matthew 16, who must suffer and die. 
And so Paul concludes with this, whether it is I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. There was an original apostolic church that was unified on this gospel. This wasn't some kind of myth that was created by later historians. But Paul says, this is the gospel that we all preach and you believe. This will hold the church together. It's the greatest message of God's love for mankind. I told you I loved the hymn Rock of Ages by August Toplady. But there's another hymn written in 1834 by Edward Mote. And I end with this. You remember it well. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust a sweeter frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen.